Excuse me. All right, brilliant. Okay, so in the sanctuary, there's three parts, yeah? We've established. I'm just repeating this for the sake of the people on the audio. Okay, so the outer what? Court. Okay, so you would enter the outer court, and what would you bring with you into the outer court if you sinned? A sacrificial animal. Now, it might be a lamb, might be two sparrows, might be whatever you can afford, right? Now, if you're an elder, or if you're the group of elders who are coming to repent for your nation's rebellion, what would you guys bring? Do you remember? A bull, right? They're pretty big and not very easy to maneuver. Yeah, <laughs> especially if it doesn't want to go where you're trying to take it. Anyway, you'd bring this animal and you'd go up on the ramps and put it on the altar of who knows? Sacrifice. Now, when you've led this animal on the altar of sacrifice, what would you do? Who remembers? They'd put their hands and place it where? On the head of the animal. They'd push down on the animal, right? Now, when they push down on this animal, what did that represent? Transferring of sin, okay? Now, here's the question. Who did that lamb represent? Jesus Christ, yes? Now, remember, this is in the Old Testament. This is a shadow of things to come, okay? This was a parable for the real in heaven. Now, 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 before we go on, I need to make this clear. A shadow, okay? Uh, let me use this. You're going to have to turn around and look here, okay? I'm in the shadow. What's in the shadow? What's in the shadow? Who can see down there? My hand. Now, according to my shadow, what color is my hand? Well, well you don't really know because the shadow doesn't reveal. What color is my shirt? What kind of cuff is it on my shirt? What color are the buttons on my shirt? What color are my nails? But what can you see from the shadow? The outline. You can see the silhouette. You can see that it's a hand. Does that make sense? So don't miss this. When it comes to the sanctuary, what God gave us on earth, it's clearly a shadow of the real. So someone who, who claims that from looking at the shadow, you can tell exactly how and perfectly what's happening in heaven doesn't make sense because the shadow doesn't reveal the details, does it? What it reveals is the rough gist. It's the outline. Does that make sense? Yeah. Ella White specifically says that in heaven, we'll be learning about not only the incarnation, but the sanctuary, the plan of redemption forever. Now, how cool would that be? Now, think about it. How cool would it be being in heaven? And Moses is giving you a workshop on the sanctuary. <laughs> like the thing he built. And hear it from Moses' perspective, yeah? And then Daniel, how he saw it in vision. And maybe Paul, how he understood in Hebrews. But best of all is when you actually sit down at Jesus' feet and he tells you how and actually what it was and starts filling in the details that you miss in a shadow. Does that make sense? So what we're explaining, you have to understand, is the shadow of the real, okay? What we, all we can understand is the overall concepts, the actual finite details we're going to know them in heaven when we're at the real temple. Does that make sense? So, in the Old Testament, they came to the outer court, okay? They put their hands on the animal. Let's just pick a lamb because it's easy to symbolize. Now, we know that the lamb is most definitely Jesus Christ, yeah? That's why John the Baptist famously, I think it's in John chapter 1 and verse, I have it written down, verse 29. When he saw Jesus Christ, he says, Behold the Lamb of God who was slain from the foundation of the world. Right? No, so who taketh away the sins of the world, it says. Yeah? 
What did John automatically recognize, or who did John automatically recognize Jesus to be? The Lamb. Does that make sense? That's why also in Isaiah it says, The Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Right? Now, Jesus, who is this perfect Lamb coming in, has all of a sudden the sins of the people put on him. Yes or no? Yeah? That's why we refer to Jesus as our substitute. What's a substitute? Takes a place. I started playing touch football Monday nights, right? And I get uber puffed out, uber quick, okay? And so what I'll do, I'll call for a substitute and I'll run off the field and someone will run in to take my place. Yes or no? Does that make sense? We refer to Jesus as a substitute because, and, and this is why. According to the the law which is inside the Ark of the Covenant, have you and I sinned? John, have you sinned? All of us have, right? The Bible clearly says, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory, yeah? Now, according to the Ark of, uh, the, the, the stones in the Ark, and according to God's justice and His righteousness, what do you and I deserve? Death, 100%. But what ended up happening? God couldn't have this. He didn't want this. So he found out a way to sort it out and he sorts it out in the court and that is where Jesus becomes our substitute. Jesus takes our place. Jesus dies in our stead, right? So this perfect animal comes in. You're sinner. You bring this perfect animal. You lay your hands on his head. And what does that symbolize? You're transferring your sins to this perfect substitute, Jesus Christ or the lamb, yeah? Then... What are the wages of sin? Death. Death. Then you take the knife and what do you do? You slit his throat. Now, who is there while this is happening? Who remembers from last week? The priest. Aaron, who was the high priest. Okay, we can do that. You and the lamb. Okay? Now, we're making this specific, okay? So you, the priest, and the lamb. So when you've cut the animal's throat and blood's coming out, what does the priest do? Who remembers? Collects the blood, yeah? In a little vessel, yeah? And then what does the priest do? Well, he goes where? Into the next compartment here, which is the holy place or the tabernacle of meeting, okay? The holy place, all right? Then what does he do? Who remembers? We read this last week. Sprinkle some where first? Is it the veil first or somewhere else first? Sorry? On the four horns of the altar of incense and then on the veil. Then he comes back outside and what does he do with the rest of it? Pours it at the base of the altar of sacrifice. Okay? Then we know the big barbecue happens. He burns the animal. People eat. They take ashes and this and that. Now, this happens daily, okay? So this is just review. We covered this last week, all right? When the person is here, who has the sin? The sinner, me, Boris, yeah? Now, I come into the court, the outer court, right? And I leave the animal on the altar, and then I push the animal down, push on his head, right? Where is the sin then? Transferred into the animal, okay? The penalty of sin is death. death. Jesus, our substitute, died for us, amen? So, the animal, which was pure, but now has your sin, you have to kill it, all right? The penalty for sin. 
But then what ends up happening? Who catches the blood? The priest. So where is your sin now? In the vessel. Right? With the priest. Then what does this priest do? He walks where? Into the second compartment, right? The holy place. And where does he put the blood? On the horns and? On, yeah, and, and also? On the veil. Transferring your sin to where? The sanctuary. Now we spoke also, not all sins went to the veil. Other ones were just on the horns of the altar of sacrifice. Other ones were at different locations, right? But all of them were in the sanctuary. Does that make sense? So day after day, year after, well, day after day, month after month, week after week, right? People are coming in and they are transferring their sin where? To the sanctuary. Now this is important. Once you put your hands on that animal, how much sin do you have? None. Does that make sense? God has dealt with sin for you. Does that make sense? You no longer have sin. It's been transferred onto Jesus Christ, yeah? You leave sinless. Praise Jesus, amen? But the problem of sin is still being dealt with. And the way it's being dealt with, the priest who also represents who? Who does the priest also represent? Priest represents, turn with me. Turn with me to the Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8. Now, last week we talked historically, okay? Today we're going to be attaching this to its literal uh, fulfillment. Now, we already know this first part. In the court, right? The, The court. Who was the lamb? I'm going to ask that once more because someone was afflicted and not listening. Who was the lamb? Jesus. And when did this lamb pay the price for us? When he died on the cross. That animal coming put out on the altar, yeah? That was the shadow of what was to come. What was the actual fulfillment that came? It was a child that was born as a little boy. Lived his entire life perfect. Never dishonoring his parents. Never breaking a single commandment. Never shaming the Father. And even though He's the only human that ever lived that deserves to go straight to heaven, He's the only one who ended up paying for the price of all the sins of the earth. Okay? That was the fulfillment of that first shadow. Okay? But then the priest had to do what? Take the blood and take it into the holy place. Now here's something that's important to understand. What happens in the court is when it comes to salvation, right? What happened in the court is what happened on earth. And we know that. Jesus came on earth and died as a man. Yes or no? Yeah. What happens in the tabernacle of meeting or in the holy place, that is what happens in heaven. What happens in the most holy place is also what happens in heaven, okay? So, the question is, who does this priest represent that collects the blood and then takes it to um, heaven. Uh, well, Hebrews chapter 9. I said chapter 8, but we're going to go to chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 11. Hebrews chapter 9, and we'll start in verse 11. Uh, say amen if you're there. All right, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11. It says, But Christ came as a high priest of the good things to come, and with the greater, more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, 
that is not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered into, my translation here says, the most holy place once and for all, having obtained redemption for all. However, the fact of the matter is that is a, that is a mistranslation. The actual translation will be the holy place. Depending on what Bible translation you have, depends what it will say. Now, That's not the point at all. The point is, who is the priest? Okay? Go down to verse 24 as well. It says, For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into what? Heaven itself. Why? To appear where? In the presence of God for? For us. Question, who is the priest? Christ. Who is the Lamb? Christ. Now, just as, right? Just as you would have to transfer your sins onto that animal, and that animal would have to die, so we need to transfer our sins onto Jesus, and and Jesus died, yeah? But also, there needs to be a mediator, a priest, so to speak, who will take this blood right? This blood that represents your sins and transfer it into the sanctuary, okay? Now, the Bible says here that when Jesus rose from the dead and when Jesus went, ascended back up to heaven, he ascended up to heaven as our high priest, the Bible says, yeah? According to what we read, who's the high priest? Jesus, Jesus Christ. So who's the priest represent? Jesus Christ. Jesus is in heaven. He went to heaven to mediate on our behalf. He went in to transfer the sins into the sanctuary. Yeah? Now, we've talked about this last week. We're going a bit overlapping, but that's fine. Where do the sins end up? On the veil or in the sanctuary. So, I come in and I sin. I live, leave free. But where does the sin end up? In the sanctuary. In the sanctuary. In the sanctuary. Sin in the sanctuary. Sin in the sanctuary. Sin in the sanctuary. Yeah? Sin in the sanctuary. Sin in the sanctuary. Over the years, do you think that the sanctuary would become a dirty place? Yes or no? When I spill a little bit of blood on my clothes, it's dirty and I need to wear it, uh, wash it, right? Imagine years of just, would the sanctuary need to be cleansed? 100%. That's why we're going to jump to the book of Daniel real quick and um, talk about, well, we're just going to mention a prophecy that's mentioned there in Daniel. And we're going to Daniel chapter 8 and verse, um, verse 14, uh, sorry, verse... Oh, that's why I was confusing. I was in the wrong chapter. Uh, Daniel chapter 8 and verse 14. Daniel chapter 8 and what verse? 14. It says, we could probably read this one together, yeah? And it says, And he said to me, For 2,300 days, then what will happen? The sanctuary will be cleansed. Hold up. The sanctuary in heaven will be cleansed? Why does the sanctuary need to be cleansed? What's been collecting in the sanctuary all this time? 
our sins. In the actual literal sanctuary on earth, what was collecting there over the year? The sins, the blood, yeah? So, now, now, now remember, this sanctuary is set up so that Jesus can deal with something, okay? Now, He's already fixed you, yes or no? You have faith in Jesus, you give Him your sins, has He taken your sins? 100%. You are fixed. But the, is the problem of sin still around? Yes. Is the problem of sin being dealt with? Ooh? Not yet. The sin has been taken from you, but it's been transferred somewhere else. Yeah? Now, does Jesus have a plan to deal with sin? 100%. Now, I'm not talking about the sinner, because he's already dealt with that, with him bringing the animal in. Yeah? But, but we're talking about sin, the actual problem that God has. Yes. And just like throughout the 359 days that people were bringing in sin, there was a day where there would be a sacrifice and there'd be a couple of animals, not for the purpose of bringing sin into the sanctuary, but for getting rid of sin from the sanctuary. Yeah? On the Day of Atonement... You would see, if you go to Leviticus 16, I think I mentioned this, if you read Leviticus 16, in fact, turn there. If you go to Leviticus 16, you would see that there would be a couple of animals that came, that were brought. There'd be two goats brought forth. And then what you would see is that they cast lots, or in our terms, they'd flip a coin, right? They'd flip a coin and see which goat is going to represent Jesus and which goat is going to represent Satan. Now, the goat that represents Jesus, Aaron the high priest, would take that goat. In fact, let's go to Leviticus chapter 16 and we'll start in verse 20. Leviticus 16, and we're going to start in verse 20. And we, when he had made, and when he had made an end of atoning, for the holy place, the tabernacle, and the meeting of altar, he shall bring in what? The, the, live, goat. the live goat. And Aaron shall lay on his... Oh, okay, I need to explain something before this happens. Okay. <laughs> I've jumped... Actually, we can just jump back and read it. Okay? So with one of the goats, which would happen, verse 8, okay? We're going to verse 8. So they bring in two goats, Yeah? And it says, and Aaron shall cast lots, or in other words, flip a coin, for the goats. One lot for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat. Okay? So one of these uh, goats are going to represent Christ. The other one will represent Satan. Now, with the one... Now stop. With the one that represents God, Aaron... Excuse me. Aaron would once again put his hands on the... Well, he'd lead the animal to the... Now, remember, Aaron was the high priest, okay? So he's doing this on behalf of all the people. Aaron would put his hands on this animal and confess for all the sins, okay? Now, remember, all the sins that people have done throughout the whole year. So all the sins that are stacked up there on the veil, all the sins that are on the altar of incense, all the sins that are on the horns of the altar of sacrifice, he'd confess all the sins. He'd confess, right? 
for all the sins that the people have transgressed. Okay? And he'd put his hands on this animal and cut its throat. Now, when he puts his hands on the animal, what's happened? Sorry? Transfer the sin into the animal. Now, the animal dies for the sins, yes? Then what he would do, though, this time, he takes that blood and he doesn't just go into the holy place, but he also goes into the most holy place and sprinkles it on the mercy seat. Okay, sprinkles it in the presence of God. This is the only time all year that someone would go behind the veil. And he would sprinkle it before the mercy seat. And in doing so, he would make atonement, right? He would make atonement for the outer court, the holy place, and the most holy place, and for the, for, the, for the people of Israel, okay? Then we pick it up in verse 20. It says, And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place, the tabernacle of meeting, and the altar, he shall bring the live goat. Okay, now remember there was two. One represented Christ, the one that died, okay? The other represented the scapegoat, or Satan. Now, think of, look at this. Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the children of Israel and their transgressions concerning all their sins, putting transgressions, oh, sorry, putting them on the head of the goat and shall send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a suitable man. The goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to an uninhabitable land and he shall release the goat in the wilderness. Then Aaron shall come into the tabernacle of meeting, shall take off the linen garments, and he shall wash them, and so on and so forth. Now, here's the point. Let me, let me just break this down. There was two. One represented who? Christ. Christ. The other one represents Satan. The one that represents Christ, he comes and pays the price for all the sins. Yeah? But then, what's something that's interesting, okay? Here's something that's interesting. Then he brings the live goat in. Now, who does that live one represent? Satan. And then he puts his hands on these ones and he confesses all the sins of the people. All that, once again, he's transferring the sins now from the sanctuary to where? To the goat who is Satan. Now, don't forget that. The plan of redemption does not finish with Jesus paying the price. Now, it does for you and me, okay? Jesus takes out. That's what the average person in Israel, that's as far as his duties went, yeah? But the full getting rid of sin does not end up with Jesus bearing it. It ends up the sin that originated from Satan gets placed back on Satan. And the Bible says that this goat was led out into the wilderness where it died, just like Satan will once again pay for all the sins that he's made people do at the end, final judgment. Now, if you and I, if you and I were to go into the court, okay, and we would look on the altar of sacrifice, what would we find there? What would we find? Blood. If we were to go into the most holy, uh, the holy place, pardon me, 
and we look on the altar of incense, what would we find there? If we look beyond the altar of incense, just behind it on the veil, what would we find there? If we were to look into the most holy place and looked on the mercy seat, what would we find there? Blood. Now, with that in mind, look at Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. Now, before we read this, I need to tell you that for some reason, there is a lot of people who have heard this truth that are just so fearful of it. They're so fearful, like, oh, what? He's still dealing with my sins in there? Oh, he's going to... Listen. Listen. From the shadow that we have, once you and I, once we confess our sins and give them to Jesus, how much sin do you have on you? None. You are free. Do you get what I mean? There is no sin in you. He's taken it. He's removed it. He's your substitute. Does that make sense? So you have nothing to fear about the sin that's in the sanctuary. Because that sin is not yours anymore. It became Jesus's. And then after he became Jesus, he got transferred from him to the sanctuary. Now listen, all the sin that's in the sanctuary, come this hour of judgment, right? All the sin that's in the sanctuary, God will remove that sin that's in the sanctuary and place it back onto Satan where it, he, where it deserves to be. And Satan will end up dying in the lakes of fire, as Revelation talks about. The Day of Atonement is not about condemning the sinner who brought the sin in. Do you get that? The Hour of Judgment is not about condemning the individual that brought the sin into the sanctuary. The Hour of Judgment is about putting this sin where the source of the sin came from, and that is Azazel, that's Satan. You follow what I'm saying? The whole point of the Day of Judgment was not, okay, which one of you guys, put your hand up if you brought the sin in here. Why did you defile this? I want to know why is it that you sin? That's not the hour of judgment. The hour of judgment is the process of God cleansing His sanctuary and taking the sins that are built up in there from all the people of all humanities from all ages that have confessed and transferring to where the sin actually deserves to be and that is the goat that represents Satan. Does that make sense? You know, we kind of view this as this time of investigative judgment where he's investigating me whether I'm good enough or not. The investigation that's taking place, this hour of judgment that's taking place, is remo- it's God removing the presence of sin, not only from you, but also from the heavenly sanctuary as well. It's about placing it back to where the blame deserves to be. It's about the individual getting the individual that deserves it to get punished. Now here's the point. Here's the point. If your sin is in the sanctuary, is it going to get dealt with? Yeah. What sin does God ultimately remove? 
And I mean ultimately. The sin that's in the sanctuary. We should not fear about putting our sins into the sanctuary. We should actually be, hey, if I could sin, put it in the sanctuary because the sanctuary, the sin that's in the sanctuary is the one that God will get rid of and put back on Satan and punish him for it. Does that make sense? And how do we put it in the sanctuary? We put him on the lamb. Does that make sense? You put him on the lamb. You put your sins on the lamb and the priest will transfer it into the sanctuary and the priest will intercede for you and the priest will place his hands upon Satan and the priest will lead, uh, get a man suitable to lead that uh, Azazel, the goat, out into the desert to die. The priest does it all. Ours is to put our hands on the lamb. Does that make sense? No, 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 don't miss this. You go onto the altar of in- you go to the court, what's there? Blood. You go to the holy place, what's there? You go to the most holy place, what's there? Blood. Hebrews chapter, te- uh, chapter 10, and we'll start in verse 19. Therefore, brethren, have boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh, having a high priest. Over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from, uh, sorry, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. The day of judgment is about returning to Satan, what is Satan's, and returning to God. What is God? Now, we shouldn't be afraid of the court. We shouldn't be afraid of the holies. We shouldn't be afraid of the most holies because wherever there is blood, we can go boldly. Do you get what I'm saying? Wherever there is blood, there is atonement. Now, how does your sins get into the sanctuary? Repeat it for me. I know I'm being repetitious, but I need you to know. How did the sins get into the sanctuary? By the lamb. What is ours to do? Put our hands on the lamb. What is his to do? Everything else. Everything else, the punishment for sin, the justification for the hard times that you've gone through, the removal of sin, that is God's responsibility, not ours. Ours is to put our hands on the Lamb. And because of this, we can come boldly to the throne of grace. We have a high priest that is interceding on our behalf. The hour of judgment is not so much a thorough examination of you whether you are perfect enough what it actually is in its context is giving to Satan what he deserves and giving to God what he deserves. Does God deserve a pure, blameless people that love and worship him? Yes or no? At the end of the day of judgment, what ended up happening? What, was the, who, what were the people around the tent? There are pure and blameless people who are worshiping him. Does God deserve that, yes or no? Does Satan deserve for all the sin and the hurt and the crime and the pain that he's started with his lies, does he deserve to carry that and to suffer and die with that? Does Satan deserve that? Yes, Yes, at the end of the day of judgment, what ended up with the goat that represents Satan? Satan receives what he deserves. And God finally receives what he deserves. That is a people 
perfect and blameless, who love God. Does that make sense? A question that I often get asked and it's a tough one and I think it's a tough one because of the shadow illustration that I used earlier. You don't get all the details in a shadow, do you? Kind of get this rough outline. If Jesus right now is in the holy, most holy place in the heavenly sanctuary, yeah? Removing sin. When is he going to stop? Because if he ever stops, there's people still sinning. And then what ends up happening with their sins? You know what I mean? The question that I often get asked is like, well, when will Jesus return? Because if he comes back, who's going to be there interceding for the sins that are taking place? You know what I mean? Now, don't forget this. Jesus never forgives you now for a sin that you'll do tomorrow. But neither does he condemn, sorry, Jesus doesn't condemn you now for a sin that you'll do tomorrow. But neither does he forgive you now for a sin that you'll do tomorrow. God is a day of the present. God is a God of the present, yeah? How you stand before God now is what counts. Don't worry about tomorrow. Don't worry about next year because next year, tomorrow are intangible. You can't get there. Don't worry about the past. It's in the past. It's intangible. You can't get there. All God's concerned about is now. Does that make sense? And if we're constantly sinning, if he leaves, what's going to happen? And that's a very fair, legitimate question. And I don't think I have the perfect answer. But I do know this. The Holy Spirit will seal God's people. But He's just some food for thought. How many of you want Jesus to come back? Me too. I praise God that every hand went up, right? How many people does Jesus want lost? And this is just some food for thought. If we're constantly sending our sins into the heavenly sanctuary, is Jesus wanting to return and forget about the sins that need to be dealt with? No, he wants to deal with your sins so that you can be saved, yeah? He, he wants to save. He wants to get rid of sins, yeah? But just some thought, I don't know, I just heard this the other day and I feel kind of impressed to just share it. It's like, maybe the way to bring Jesus back is to stop sending our sins up. And I don't mean stop confessing. I mean rely on Him to actually change who we are, to change our desires. Now listen, we're on this journey and no one's perfect. I'm not talking about perfection. But what I am talking about is faith in Jesus to, by His grace, change who we are, to change the desires that I have for sin. Because the point of the sanctuary is not just to put a Band-Aid God actually wants to remove sin as well, yeah? And so maybe, I don't know, but maybe an answer or a partial answer to that question is how about we start having some real faith that God can do in us what He promised He can do in us. You know, we believe that God can do what's His to do. 
in his own realm. (laughs) But we get uncomfortable when we start claiming promises about what he can do in our realm, in our life, in our family, in my life. But how about we start having faith that Jesus can accomplish what he actually said he can accomplish? Because I believe that everyone here has experienced to some level the destruction of sin in their life. Whether it's pain, whether it's hurt, whether it's a separation, I don't know what, but some level, I believe everyone in this room has experienced the rubbishness of sin. God doesn't want us to have to be in that rubbish. Today or tomorrow or the day after, right? But he wants us to be, yes, in the world, but not of the world, not not constantly just saying, it's okay, I'll go tomorrow and put my hands on the lamb, which is true, it's okay, you can go tomorrow and put your hands on the lamb. He's always going to be there for you, yeah? But there's a part of the gospel that is not just about getting rid of your past. It's about changing who you are now. And that's why the everlasting gospel, it starts by saying, fear God. And if you do a Bible study, what does that mean? Hate evil. It starts by saying, give God glory. That doesn't mean, oh God, you're awesome. No, what it means is stay faithful to Jesus no matter what. Why? I've removed sins. You follow that? Sometimes all we ever preach when it comes to the gospel is that last part, I've removed sins and praise Jesus for that because that's our only salvation, yeah? But the everlasting gospel message begins by saying, obey me, stay faithful to me no matter what. Why? Because I've removed your sins. This removing of sins is also an enabling to follow Jesus, the way he intended you to follow him. You know, the Ten Commandments. Who can tell me one of them? Say that once more. Thou shalt not kill. kill. Who can tell me another? Thou shalt not steal. Who can tell me another? Remember the Sabbath. What does it say? Honor your father and mother. Who knows what the second one is? Second one. Sorry? That's the first one. Second one. Uh, second one. Don't bow down to other to idols, yeah? Third one. Thou shalt not take the Lord the name of the Lord your God in vain. Now here's the thing, here's the thing. How many of you have ever read the Ten Commandments in Young's literal translation? Now, Mr. Young was a scholar, and what he did in this, and it's a kind of a difficult Bible to read because it doesn't flow with English. You know what I mean? But all he did was literally translate word for word in its, in its actual written structure. You know what I mean? And it's kind of an interesting thing. Now, here's why it's interesting. The Ten Commandments, can someone start quoting the first one for me? Exactly, we always do that. But did you know that that is not actually a part of the first commandment? The actual first commandment is have no other gods before me. 
I am the Lord your God who led you out of the land of Egypt, is separate from the Ten Commandments. It is separate but connected. In other words, it is the reason for the Ten Commandments. And also, the Ten Commandments in, in the Hebrew, how they're written, shalt not does not exist. It doesn't exist. The commandment says this, I am the Lord your God who led you out of the land of Egypt, who freed you from the land of bondage, I think it says, yeah? Then it says, thou wilt not have any other gods besides me. You will not bow down to idols. You will not take my name in vain. Remember the Sabbath. Oh, you will honor your parents, sorry. <laughs> yeah. Um, you will not steal. You will not lie. You will not commit adultery. Now he says, I've saved you. I've led you out of the land of Egypt. You will not. You will not. You will not. They are more promises than they are commands. And that is why Ellen White has this quote that says, Every one of God's commands are his enablings. What does that mean? God's command is his promise. Do you get what I'm saying? The very fact that there's a command that says don't steal, it means that God promises you that He can keep you from stealing. You follow what I'm saying? The very fact that it says remember the Sabbath, it's God promising that He will enable you to keep that seventh day even when it's difficult. The very fact that it says do not commit adultery, it means that God will enable you to love your wife even when she's sometimes mean to you. The very fact that the Bible says, do not covet, what well, says, you will not covet, is a promise that God will satisfy your life to the point that you will not have to desire someone else's life. In fact, in the, in the, in the Mishnah, about the 10th commandment, thou shalt not cover, covet, they say, if you keep the first nine, you will not desire anyone else's life. His very commandments are promises of what you can be like. Now, it's Him that does it in you. Now, don't forget, and the reason why I'm talking about this is too often we make the law separate to God's promises. We make the law a condition to receiving promises. But that's not the fact. The command itself is God's promise that you can not lie. It's God's promise that you can have Him as your only God. And not only that you can, that you will. Now, why will you have him as your only God? Why will you not bow down to other idols? Why will you not take his name in vain? Why will you remember the Sabbath? Why will you honor the parents? Why will you not murder? Why will you not commit adultery? Why will you not steal? Why will you not lie? Why will you not covet? Because he led you out of the land of bondage. It's because the hour of judgment has come. It's because He has removed sins. Does that make sense? You're getting what I'm saying? The gospel, the, the, the message of the judgment that He's removed my sins is beautiful. But the fact that He removes your sins has implications about how you will live in the future. Does that make sense? You cannot remove how you should live today from what God has done with your past. Does that make sense? The hour of judgment, which is the days that we've lived in for the last 150-some years,
170 years this year. The hour of judgment that we've been living in is we're living in a day where Satan will receive what he deserves, but God will also receive what he deserves. And that is a people, pure and blameless, that worship him. Does that make sense? Now remember, from that process, what can we do? Put our hands on the Lamb. The removal of sin is something that He does, yeah? Let's have a word of prayer and wrap it up. Heavenly Father, we thank You so much for the hour of judgment. Lord, we thank You so much that You are a God who is not satisfied to be away from us. But Lord, You have gone to extreme lengths to provide a way for us to be with You. And I pray that each and every one of us may be touched by that very fact and a desire in our heart may be brewed to want to be with You too. Father God, we thank You that all we have to do is accept Jesus Christ and His substitution for us. Thank You that You have made salvation so simple for us. But Lord, we recognize that this is not so simple for You. And so, Lord, we want to thank you for you doing the hard work. And we want to ask for faith. And, Lord, we want to ask for you to increase the faith that we have so that we can believe that you will do what you've promised. And, Father, we ask that your gospel may change our life, not just inform our mind. In Jesus' name, we ask and pray. Amen.